0: Welcome to Insights with Sites, the Symphony of Scripture, a weekly podcast exploring the themes and contours of the weekly Scripture readings. For more information about the podcast or to download the companion notes, please visit www.wickliffcollege.ca podcast. We now join our host, the Reverend Dr. Christopher Sites.
1: Our readings for the third Sunday after Pentecost are for both tracks one and two, portion of chapter three from Mark's Gospel, the confrontation between Jesus and certain scribes come down from Jerusalem, and the continuous epistle reading that we're following this week from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, a portion of 1 Samuel paired with Psalm 138 for track 1 and for the complementary track 2 a text from Genesis together with Psalm 130 chosen to emphasize the satanic character of the confrontation with Jesus we read in the gospel for the day I want to start by offering a brief summary of the contents of 1 Samuel the focus of track 1 that is, the portions that are left out between the Sunday selections, the call of Samuel in chapter 3 from last week, and today's reading about the anointing of the ill-fated Saul that we have in chapter 8. This will help us fill in the blanks and better understand the portions from First Samuel track 1 is providing according to its let the Old Testament have its own voice plot line. I recall parenthetically doing a fairly major lecture or Sunday morning teaching series which was a kind of track one walk through the Old Testament and New Testament organized in a teaching volume called The Story. For my part I found catching people up on what got left out equally interesting as why what was chosen was chosen. What the overall narrative line from these opening chapters of Samuel makes clear is that Samuel preserves Israel during his faithful tenure. He is a prophet who assures that assaults from enemies do not overwhelm God's people. His leadership is sound and reliable. The threats are real and sustained every bit as much during his reign as what is worried about in the future, but God uses Samuel to best purpose. When he becomes old in time, the people fear the future without him. Their request, however, for a king is not favorable to God. Fear, which is what they are experiencing, is handled by God differently than that. When grounded as well, to be like the nations, let us have a king. Well, that is exactly not what Israel is to be, like the nations. She is to be a light to the nations, different, holy, in relationship with a saving Lord on her behalf. So God tells Samuel to warn the people about their request, and he does, as we hear this morning, in a litany of concern. They ignore him and double down. God clarifies it is a rejection of him as king, as Lord, with a different idea of nationality and kingship and not a rejection of Samuel. Samuel, in portions we're not reading, is sent to anoint Saul as what in Hebrew is called a nagid, a ruler. The text says God has heard the cries of Israel for help. We hear in this ruler, this Nagid, a concession to a request, but on different terms than as a king so as to be like the nations. The people react to this, however, as consistent with their cry for a king. Samuel warns them, strict obedience will be the name of this game that they are demanding they will play. And so we watch as Saul is strictly obedient vis-a-vis his son, Jonathan, but not in respect of Samuel. And so this kingship, this kingship they have requested, suffers the fate appropriate to it and those who requested it. God rejects Saul under the conditions of kingship as strict obedience to him in spite of Saul's stature, good looks. And obvious success as a Nagid in battle. It's hard not to view him as caught up in the vortex of wrongly grounded requests accompanied by a high bar for compliance. One typical way of handling the complexity of the narrative unfolding in Samuel and in other places is to assign the bits that appear in tension to different sources or different authors pro-monarchial, anti-monarchial, and so forth. But this only defers from interpreting the text actually as it presently stands before us. I think in general it's better practice to assume the tensions have been left there precisely to convey the complexity. You want a king, you will have one. But things wrongly predicated run their course in strict ways and not generous ones. I mentioned last week the way the Gospel of Mark transitioned from chapter 1's depiction of Jesus confronting spiritual forces of Satan to his confrontation with religious leaders who challenge his fellowship with tax collectors and his conduct on the Sabbath. And today these two realms overlap and merge. The religious leaders seek to claim that Jesus is himself a challenge to them because he is at work for Satan. Going out of one's mind, the charge, is often a charge of demonic possession. His very success in healing and carving out clear inroads into the territory of Satan, so much so that he can barely stop for food, occasions, ironically, their charge of possession. Jesus makes two responses. The first one is long and the second one is a summary statement of fact. To bind up the strong man is to attack the realm of Satan at its source and in this way to plunder and destroy his house, his earthly domain of death and bondage. That is the reality of what Jesus is up to. The longer introduction to this otherwise succinct point consists in his rebuttal of the leader's charge that he is operating at Satan's behest. That is nonsensical on its face, Jesus replies. Why would Satan dispatch Jesus to defeat his earthly authority? The charge they level is at the same time an admission that Jesus has been successful He drives out demons. Even they get that much. Silencing them, as Jesus has sought to do, has not prevented their being recognized as driven out at his command. And Satan would be divided against himself if he allowed such an activity and was the motive force behind it. No, Jesus is plundering the house of the strong man. And anyone who claims he is acting demonically shows themselves to be on Satan's side as such. The unpardonable sin, then, we read about is to see Jesus acting to defeat sin and death and bondage and to attribute that to the devil. The strong rebuke Jesus gives to his mothers and brothers and cousins, however we interpret that Greek word, must be heard in this even stronger context. They are seeking to restrain him, we read, and that is wrong. He must be about his father's business, as Luke's milder version of this pushback goes. It is the people who have wondered about his mental state, and his family have come to act on that basis, presumably out of concern. As our reading ends, they appear as those calling for him to come aside, He refuses, and it is to those gathered before him that he directs his words. You are brothers and sisters and family. In the work I am given to undertake, such strong charges will be made about me and the challenges I must defeat. So it goes. Follow me. Do not try solace or concern, well motivated though that might be, on a human plane or in human families. To be in my family is first and foremost to allow me to do my father's work, who is your father as well. The rejection of Samuel is a rejection of God himself. Samuel is reminded, a request to have things as seems best to us on the earthly plane Let us have a king like other nations cannot be but a rejection of God's kingdom and the king he has in view, David and David's greater son, whose coming is in his timing and in his purpose. Jesus' kingdom brings confrontation from those who resist or cannot see how God is working in him to bring about healing, and in time, the defeat of all hostile forces launched against God himself. And yet, in this and through this, he is creating his own special family of mother and brother and sister. The Genesis reading shows us just how deeply the assault on God's good creation rends the peace of that good created order. Fear has now entered the stage. Fear not unlike that of the people requesting a king. Dissembling and accusation. Satan strikes the head of humanity and it will take the offspring of Eve to strike back in victory, even a victory over death and enmity, stretching back to this initial assault. And along the way, it will be the forgiveness and forbearance of God with his people, demonstrating that his love is so strong, it teaches us fear and reverence. So, Psalm 130. And Psalm 138, chosen to come alongside 1 Samuel 8 reminds us that whatever king God does come in time to bring will only be king in praise and obedience before God's kingship. Unlike the kings of the nations, who must themselves in time also find their own praise before the one Lord. And this is the safe refuge from enemies, The people cry out for, and only this, as Samuel has during his tenure taught them. In the words, then, to conclude of today's epistle, so we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. Whatever slight momentary affliction there is, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure, because we look not at what can be seen in the kings of this age, but what cannot be seen, for what can be seen is temporary only, but God's eternal kingdom in his Son is eternal. And we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building, a kingdom from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens.
0: We hope you enjoyed Insights with Sights, the symphony of Scripture. For archived episodes and notes, please visit www.wickliffcollege.ca podcast Thank you, and we hope you tune in again. This podcast is a ministry of Wycliffe College at the University of Toronto.